or in church. Um, yeah, thanks for being with us today. Uh, I was supposed to be preaching in, in person at The Rock, but we had a, a bit of an issue here. Um, well, not really an issue, but we had to go get tested for COVID. So we thought, um, you know, before we, we got a result back or anything like that, um, it'd just be safest if we, we stayed at home here. So Dallas is, uh, and the team were able to uh, get me to do this uh, from my basement that it was just recently completed. Um, so hopefully, hoping it's going to work out well. Um, you know, I haven't, uh, haven't, haven't preached maybe to just a camera like this before. So I tend to be one that likes to walk around the stage a little bit. Um, so this, uh, we'll see how I do sitting down here, but, uh, thanks for your patience here. So, um, another thing, just want to say happy mother's day. Um, I know there's a lot, a lot of moms. I know my mom will be watching and I think my, my mother-in-law will be watching. So happy mother's day to, to you too. Um, and then of course my, my wife just became a mom not too long ago, uh, to Henry and, uh, she's doing a really great job. And, um, we were also supposed to do a, a dedication of Henry today. Um, again, didn't quite work out, but that's, uh, that's okay. So. We're excited. Uh, we're really excited for for everyone to get back to church and for for Henry to meet uh, to meet everyone. For Hank, I know my wife won't won't like that I said that, but uh, uh, she'll find out in the recording tomorrow or yesterday. Um, but uh, yeah, I just want to wish everyone a happy Mother's Day. And I know um, you know for some people, Mother's Day is uh, is actually kind of a sad time. Um, you know, either lost a mother or a mother who's lost a child. Um, obviously, it's uh, not always a joyous occasion for everyone. So we just. Yeah, we want to acknowledge that, and we we grieve with you who grieve that. And uh, you know, as 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 a church body, when when one person hurts, we all hurt. So, um, just wanted to acknowledge that. So, so today, um, I will be speaking on spiritual disciplines, and so how does that connect to us loving well, um, loving God well, loving people well? Kind of continuing on with with the theme uh, that we've been going on for the last. Last couple of months here, so um, I don't think it's going to be any sort of rocket science that we're going to find out today. But uh, <clears throat> just been thinking about yeah, spiritual disciplines and how they apply to our life and how they how they affect the way we love God and love others. And so I think you know a helpful beginning point is you know what, what does the word discipline even mean? And uh, it comes from the the Latin word the discipulus. I believe I said that right, which means uh, people, so a student. And it also is the root word for disciples. So Discipline can essentially have two meanings. Um, it can mean, you can use it in, in one way to describe a, a punishment or a correction or to inflict a penalty for a wrongdoing, or it can mean to teach and instruct and educate and, and, and train. And so, um, you know, the way we're going to talk about discipline today is, is not that um, punishment uh, uh, correction, but uh, the teach and the train and the, and the build up a sort of way. So, when we're talking about spiritual disciplines, we're not necessarily talking about that inflicting the punishment. We're talking about um, training us up to be uh, a student, a student of the Lord. So, um, you know, just kind of start. Some of you might not know that in uh, a past life, I played hockey at a fairly high level. And, uh, you know, I was very dedicated from a young age to, to honing my skills. As you can tell, I'm not, not the biggest guy around, so I had to be um, better than everyone else skill-wise. And so I, I spent hours and hours uh, working on my skills, working on my my speed, my my stick handling, building, my shooting. Um, so that could be the best I possibly could be and be better than everyone else because I had to make up for my lack of size. Um, and I thought I would be able to do that with my skill. And so the thing is, um, you know, I, I wasn't very skilled, so I had to do a lot of work on it. And, um, you know, if my dad and mom and dad are watching, 
Um, you know, we used to have, we lived kind of in a smaller town in Emerald Park and on the driveway, we had a fairly big front front lawn. So I would have a hockey net there and I had a map that my dad bought me and I'd shoot pucks just for hours and hours and hours, probably shot, gosh, 10, 20,000 pucks, um, you know, probably more on that actually growing up. And the thing is, I wasn't very good. So I missed the net a lot, right? And so the pucks would go off into the lawn and the pucks would go into the neighbor's lawn. And, you know, I was fairly good. Um, you know, I had about a bucket of, of 70 pucks and I would shoot them and I'd go pick up the ones I missed and shoot them, come and pick up the ones I missed. And it seemed like my, uh, my, the amount of pucks that I had at the end of the day was less than when I started. And as I said, I would, I would go out and pick up these pucks and pick them up from the neighbor's yard. And, you know, every now and then my dad would be mowing the lawn on the lawnmower and, you know, I'd be out there shooting pucks and sure enough, you'd hear this like, and um, uh, you'd look and you'd see these black chunks flying out of the, the chute of the mower. And that's when um, I knew that the first definition of discipline, the punishment for uh, <laughs> punishment for doing something wrong was headed my way. So I'd head out the other way. But uh, yeah, I was, I would, I would spend just a ton of time working on my skills and, you know, I'd watch guys who made it to the NHL and I'd watch how they train. And, um, you know, this was back before uh, kids, you know, 12 or 11, 10, um, did a lot of high performance training. We didn't even have a gym in my, my hometown. But I saw these NHL guys, they had this parachute attached to their back and they would run back and forth or they'd skate with this parachute. And it was to build up their, you know, cardiovascular, it was to build up their leg strength, um, their skating ability. And I thought, man, you know, I, I want to get to this level. So I want, I want to emulate that. So, um, me being the, you know, 10 or 11 year old kid, what I thought I would do is I would take a garbage bag and I, uh, attached it with rope or tape or something like that to the back of my bike. And I would bike up and down the streets of Emerald Park with this garbage bag behind me, um, trying to provide that resistance. And half the time the bag would actually just kind of skid along the ground because I was going with the wind. And then if I ever did get it up to, to provide some resistance, it would, it would, uh, it would fall off or it would fly off because it was attached by tape or shoestring or something like that. And I can only imagine, you know, what the people were thinking on my street as they saw this kid biking up and down with this garbage bag um, <laughs> attached to the back that was just kind of going along the, the ground. And you know what most most parents think at one point is like, what what is wrong with this kid? And so, um, you know, but like I said, I was dedicated and care what other people thought um, to try to be the best I could. And I got to high school and same thing, started training more. Um, I, you know, I used to run sprints up and down the hallways um, after school to, to work on my, my speed and my cardiovascular. And, you know, I, we used to do these tests in hockey where we'd put a, a cover over our, our mouth or whatever it was. And, and then we would bike really hard. And it was to, um, to determine the amount of oxygen that you were consuming, um, a VO2 max test, test test it was called. And so um, I thought the best way to improve my VO2 max score would be um, to exert myself as hard as I could without taking any oxygen in. And so I'd run up and down the hallways, um, holding my breath for as long as I could and run as fast as I could. And sure enough, as you imagine, like um, eventually you breathe because uh, you need to. And so um, you know, that wasn't quite good enough for me. So I used to stick Kleenex up my nose to block any sort of air that would come out. Um, so only my mouth would be the only thing that air could get in or out. And so I remember sprinting up and down the hallways with Kleenex stuffed up my nose. And the teachers eventually just said, listen, like you're, you're not allowed to do this anymore because you're going to, you're going to hurt yourself. And so it was either I could keep on training at the, at the school or, or, uh, if I took out the Kleenex on my nose or else I'd have to find some other place to do it. So, um, you know, what's the, what's the point of me telling you these stories other than just kind of maybe 
affirming or confirming what some of you guys already know about the meathead I was growing up. Um, the reason I'm saying that is because I was very strict and very disciplined to be the best hockey player I possibly could. My goal was always to play hockey professionally. And so I did what I needed to do to be successful. And, you know, when you look at the people who actually make uh, the, the highest level and at the highest caliber, you know, you look at the Yamane Yagers who did thousand squats, one-legged squats a day since he was seven years old. You look at the Tom Brady's, you know, you look at the Sidney Crosby, you look at all these guys, the LeBron James's, um, they are absolutely dedicated and disciplined. Every decision they make is with one goal in mind, and that's to be the absolute best um, that they can be at their, at their, uh, at their sport. And so um, they're incredibly disciplined. And so Paul says this, he uses a sports analogy and I like it. He says, Paul says in first Corinthians nine, he says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets a prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. Now, if Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, you know, probably the most important person in all of Christianity, except for, for Jesus, saw the need to discipline himself in order not to disqualify him from the race of, of life, how much more do you think someone like me and someone like you need to learn the, the aspects of spiritual discipline to run this race well? So today I'm going to go through just three spiritual disciplines um, that are absolutely vital to making sure that we run the race well. And like I said, I don't think this is going to be revolutionary. I don't think this is going to be a huge light bulb moment for anyone because they're pretty well known. But I believe that, that the things I'll talk about here will help develop and help promote spiritual discipline and spiritual growth in our lives so that we can love well. So there are time spent reading and memorizing scripture. There are time spent in prayer and there are time spent serving. And it's important to know that spiritual disciplines are not attitudes, they're actions, they're practices. There are things that you do. And why do we do this? As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 7, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And godliness means being more and more like Jesus. So it's very vital to know this, that the purpose of spiritual disciplines is simply to become more like Jesus. And it's important to know that spiritual disciplines, they're not a, they're a means, they're not an ends. So what does that mean is that you don't read your Bible, you don't pray, and you don't serve just for the sake of reading and praying and serving. It's not a box to check off so that you're good for the week. The ends of discipline, the ends of spiritual discipline is to be more like Jesus. And that is so crucial to understand as we practice these spiritual disciplines. Because it's possible to think that we're godly simply because we read and we pray and we serve. I mean, the Pharisees, they were extremely disciplined to reading to fasting, to memorizing scripture. But the picture we get of the Pharisees in the Bible is that they're not very godly, are they? So the aim of these things, as I said, and I'll reiterate this until you guys get tired of hearing it, but the aim of spiritual discipline is to become more and more like Jesus. That is the foundation for anything we do in our faith. So Bible reading, why, why do we read the Bible? Is that a question you've ever asked yourself? Like why, why does Taylor, why do you read the Bible? I think maybe a question we need to address is, is the Bible true? And that we can't address that in this one, but I think it would be a good sermon topic to go forward with. But uh, let's just go with the premise that the Bible is true. So why would, why would you read the Bible? I guess my reasoning for reading the Bible is 
How else would I know who the person of Jesus was without reading about him? Preaching's good. Podcasts are good. Worship music is good. Community is good. All these things are super good, but they are complementary and not supplementary to reading the Bible. Jesus himself spends his time dedicating his, his knowledge, his life to knowing the scriptures. There's this awesome story in Luke 4 where Jesus flexes his knowledge on the scriptures. In Luke 4, he goes to the synagogue and he, he goes there and he stands up and he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he reads it. And he puts it down and he sits down. And everyone's kind of looking around like, what, what just happened? And Jesus says, you see what I just read here? Did you hear what I said? This is happening right now. And it's all pointing towards me. Everything you've read in scriptures, it points towards me. In fact, throughout Jesus's ministry, what he used most often to refer and to validate who he was and what he was doing were the scriptures. So if Jesus put so much emphasis in the scriptures, shouldn't we? We live in this time period where we have more access and more resources to help us read the Bible than anyone has ever had in all of history. And that's not an overstatement. It's accessible to us in every way possible. If you own a phone, you literally have the ability to read the Bible at any moment, in almost any language, in any translation. But how many of us actually read the Bible on a daily basis? It's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? We have this ability to dive into God's word at any time of day to learn more, to grow more, to know his character, to know his promises, to know his workings. And instead, I'm just as guilty of this. I spend my time on things like stocks or TV or social media or fantasy sports. I would rather spend my time scrolling through social media or looking at stocks than I would getting to know the God of the universe. It should be convicting for us to think that throughout all of history, people have literally died for the opportunity to own or read a Bible. And we can treat it as a chore or inconvenience at best. There are 52 countries in the world right now where it's either extremely difficult, dangerous, restricted, or illegal to own a Bible. And sometimes I wonder what those Christians would say to someone like me, if they realize how much access I had to God's word, but instead of taking advantage of it, I just chose to watch TV. So instead of viewing our Bible reading times as a chore or a box that we can check so we're good for the week, I challenge us to see it as a privilege. That doesn't mean though that that privilege is easy. We've all experienced the dryness and dullness of our quiet times. Let me just say that reading the book of Numbers or the book of Philemon isn't necessarily the type of material that spurs my heart on to see the glories and the wonders of God. It can, but it's dry sometimes. And so this sermon isn't just a sermon that says, read your Bible more. It's a few ways that we can help ourselves to put in these spiritual disciplines to read the Bible more. So what do we do to read the Bible more? One thing I would say is don't wait until you feel your heart stir that you should read the Bible. Read the Bible and watch your heart stir from that. Oftentimes when I go to read, I don't have this burning desire to open up my Bible. Sometimes I do and it's awesome and it's so enjoyable and it's great. But a lot of times, I don't necessarily feel that. I'll ask God to open up my eyes to see something about him that I haven't seen before. I'll put my, my act first, and then I'll watch my heart follow. As Paul says in Romans 12, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, through the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and well-pleasing to God, your true worship. And do not conform to this age, but be transformed 
to the renewing of your mind so that you can approve what is the will of God, that is what is good, what is well-pleasing and perfect. You see what Paul is saying here? He's calling us to conform to the image of Jesus. How can we conform to the image of Jesus if we don't know what he's about, what he calls us to, or who he is? When Paul says, do not conform to this age, he's using language that su suggests conforming to this world isn't necessarily an active decision. Meaning, it's not very hard to get caught up with this age that we forget the age to come. It's a general flowing with the currents instead of swimming against it. And it can happen easily enough with things that aren't even, aren't even sinful. It's just life. The renewing, <clears throat> sorry, Paul is exhorting us to transform our thinking so that we can know God more and more. And this transformation in thinking comes from time spent with Jesus. And make no mistake, this takes work and it takes effort. The idea Paul is presenting here is to present, present your whole life as a sacrifice to God. And this involves active, concentrated work in growing your relationship with Christ. The renewing of the mind is a continual process, and Paul is stressing the need for us to work constantly at that transformation. This reprogramming of the mind, of the will, of the heart, does not take place overnight, but it's a lifelong process by which our, think, our way of thinking changes to resemble more and more the way God wants us to think. Godliness and an enjoyable relationship with him is never, never merely stumbled upon. It's a conscious decision to discipline oneself by the mercies of God. If you see in Romans 12, it says, by the mercies of God, through his power, through his enabling grace, to put in that effort to grow the relationship. So the first key to read the Bible more is not to read it, wait until you feel like reading it to read it. The second key, I would say, is to have a fairly regular time that you read. Find that sweet spot in your day where you have some free time and set it aside for reading. Soon enough, it will become just a normal practice. That's when you go to read the Bible. Right now, for me, that sweet spot is about 4.30. It's right after work. Hank is just going down for a nap, and I have about an hour's time where I can either read and pray and spend time with God, or I can do something else. For a lot of people, that could be first thing in the morning. That could be last thing at night, uh, you know, 9 o'clock when all the kids are in bed. But there is time in your day. I know we're busy, but there is some time during your day that we can set aside for the Lord. And yes, that may mean we have to turn off the TV or we have to shut off our phones or we have to let the shrubs grow one more day, but it's worth it. The third key is to read your Bible to see God more clearly. Don't box yourself in with a certain amount you have to read. If you read five chapters or five verses, read with intentionality. Read it slowly, chewing it over, mulling things over. Read asking God to show up, to show you something new. Make highlights if you come across a verse that strikes you. Don't rush off on it. Stay on it. Open up Google. Read some commentaries on it. I never put a desired amount that I have to read. If I read 10 chapters or just 10 verses, whatever God wants to speak to me and whatever God wants to say to me in those 10 chapters or 10 verses, I'm good with. There is no time frame. There is no rush to finish the Bible for me. So I encourage you to do the same. Don't box yourself in with the amount you have to finish. It's not the quantity that we read, but it's the quality of time we spend reading. Prayer, that's our next discipline. Bible reading should lead us into a time of prayer. I don't think that this is gonna be a controversial or earth shattering statement to say that Christians would affirm the importance and the need to pray. We just have a hard time praying. Prayer is a good way to gauge the warmth of the hearts of the Father. Hearts that don't run to God, often in prayer, reveal a deeper issue. 
perhaps we don't really see God as a father, or we don't think he hears, or we don't actually think he has the power to do anything through our prayers. Perhaps we think we aren't worthy enough, or that we don't really need God that much. A prayerless Christian may be a symptom of a Christian that is too comfortable with the world they live in. A Christian that doesn't necessarily have their sights set on what's most important. A Christian that doesn't realize that they are dependent on the Father for absolutely everything. That isn't to say that finding the strength of prayer to pray can be extremely difficult at times. I'm thinking right now of those in our congregation who have suffered incredible losses in the last year and the anger and hurt and sadness and the multitude of other issues that make it challenging to come to the Father are so understandable. For those of us in those seasons, this isn't a hammer to beat you down to say you should pray more. God understands. He's not cruel. He's not unjust. And he's not harsh. And I encourage you to give whatever you have, however little that may be to him, in prayer. Like the widow who tithed from the very little money that she had, perhaps God sees the wounded Christian the same way. That even their mustard seed of faith in times of immense trials is more to God than the on-fire prayer warrior who's in the season of blessing. If you found that you're in a bit of a rut while praying, that maybe you've grown tired of praying the same thing over and over again, I would encourage you to say that God honors the persistent prayer, just as Jesus explained in his parable of the persistent widow. But another way to give yourself a bit of a jolt in your prayer life is to pray the Bible. I've started doing this in the last few years, and instead of trying to come up with my own words, I take God's words and I pray them to him. And I have a list of things that I have found in the Bible, and this is by no means exhaustive, that I can pray and that you can pray. And I'll email this list to Dallas so that he can send this out in an email. But pray that God would exalt his name in this world and extend his kingdom, Matthew 6. Pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Luke 11. Pray that God would save unbelievers, Romans 10. Pray for boldness and proclamation of the gospel, Ephesians 6, 6 and Acts 4. Pray for healing for those who are sick, sick James 5, Acts 28. Pray that God would supply our every need, Matthew 6. Pray for wisdom, James 1. Pray for strength and endurance during difficulty, Colossians 1. Pray for the forgiveness of your sins, Matthew 6. Pray over our anxieties and our worries, 1 Peter, Matthew 6, Philippians 4. Express your gratitude and thank him for all he does, Philippians 4. Pray for comfort and to trust that God is for you and he's on your side and he's working for your good, Romans 8, Psalm 84. Pray over your hurts and your angers towards God, Psalm 69. Pray over your confusion of what you see in the world, the whole book of Job. Pray about God's character, his goodness, and his mercy, and his grace, and his faithfulness, and his justice to leave no wrong unaccounted for, Exodus 34. Pray over God's providential care and love for you, Psalm 23. Pray for God to begin a new work in you, 2 Corinthians 5. Pray for a deeper sense of your hope and your assurance in him, Ephesians 1. And pray expecting to meet God and to expect God to answer, James 1 and 1 Peter 3. Now, that's about 15 things that should keep us busy for a little while. And when you pray these things, pray them slowly, pray them mindfully, asking God to show you more and more of these things that you're praying for. So, for example, pray about God's character in Exodus 34. Really maul, maul over what it means for God to be good and merciful and just and unfailing love towards us. Pray over God's providential care for us. Read Psalm 23 and know that that's how God sees you. And that's how God cares for you, like a good shepherd looking after the sheep. I'm, I'm convinced that perhaps one of the purposes of prayer is not so much to have God move on our behalf, 
but for God to change our hearts on his behalf, to mold us more and more into the creation he called us to be, and to reflect his image to the people that we are surrounded by. And finally, the third discipline is serving, to serve one another in love. The hope is, is that Bible reading leads to prayer, and prayer leads to service. And serving is maybe one of those Christian activities that can be seen as not as important or maybe not a pillar to the faith like prayer or Bible reading are. If there's time to do some, or if it's convenient, yeah, then serving is a possibility. But I'd argue, biblically speaking, service is absolutely integral to the Christian walk. And to not serve is to go against the heart of what Jesus did for us. As Mark 10 verses 43 to 45 says, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be a servant to everyone else. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for men. It doesn't really get any more clear than that, than what Jesus came to do, does it? Serving is one of those disciplines that seems daunting at first, but we find that it's actually very life-giving. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us since Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Who doesn't want true life? And who doesn't want to experience what living a life for God is really about? The thing is, we actually know this from experience, right? Like who's ever been forced to do something that they didn't want to do? And in the end, they're happy to do it. Who has a mom that has ever forced them to do something they didn't want to do? I'll put up my hand. My mom has made me do that multiple times. So Joanna and I, just an example from our life. Joanna and I, we serve at the bridge on 20th in a ministry called Kids Club. And initially, neither of us wanted to do it. It was awkward at first. You don't really know the kids. You don't know the leaders. To be honest, the kids are from a totally different world than what we're from. And it's hard to make connections. And they're kind of wild. And so we were hesitant. And at first, we just weren't sure. But we know that God calls us to look after and to spend time with those who would be considered the outcasts of society. And now, fast forward four years from serving at Kids Club, we look forward to our Monday nights to hang out with the leaders and hang out with the kids. It's become a very life-giving event for us on a weekly basis. Serving is where rubber meets the road, and you can put into practice the thing that God has been showing you. You get the practice and experience God's hand working through you. Who's ever been the answer to someone's prayer because they were obedient to act on what God was calling them? It's one of the greatest joys you can have. Now, I'll just give you two very distinct moments from our life where we felt we were an answer to someone else's prayer. Twice we have felt God calling us to give a certain sum of money to a certain group of people. One was for a family at Kids Club. We felt that God was calling us to be generous to them. We didn't know anything about their situation, but we ended up going there one night and dropping off some money. And the mom, when she answered the door, she just started crying. She said that she was praying because she didn't know where she was going to get money to feed her family that week. And she wasn't sure where she was going to get the food for, for her four or five kids. And then we just happened to show up and drop money off without any knowledge of their situation or what they're going through. Another time we felt through prayer that God was calling us to give a certain amount of money to an organization. We had no idea how the financials were or anything like that. We just felt that God had called us to give us a specific amount to this group. Long story short, when we get, went to give the money, that day we received from the government the exact amount of money we thought we were, or we heard God call us to give. And then when we talked to the group who we were going to give this money to, that amount of money was the exact amount of money they needed to cover their expenses for that month. 
Neither the amount from the government or the amount the group needed was specified to this, but every need was met all the way around. Now, who do you think really benefited from those moments? Certainly, the people receiving the financial help benefited from it, but Joanna and I would argue that we were truly the ones to benefit from it. Not only were we able to experience the joy of giving and helping those who needed it, we experienced the confidence and joy and trust that God is in control and that he will supply all of our needs. To close this off, I just want to reiterate and remind us why we practice these spiritual disciplines. And it's so important to approach this in the correct light. Otherwise, it will not be life-giving. The purpose of these disciplines, the purpose of reading and praying and serving and any other spiritual discipline you undertake is to reflect Jesus more and more. It's to grow to be more like him, to grow our joy in him, our hope in him, our confidence in him. That is a starting point for any spiritual discipline you take. It's to get to know Jesus more and more and to see his worth and his beauty and his awesomeness. And yes, it takes work. And yes, it's not easy. And yes, it is worth it. I just have one more thing to add that I think is a great way to end this sermon. I know in our church over the last year, we have experienced a lot of heartbreak. There have been people in the church who are no longer with us, and that makes all of us sad. But I think this is a good way to put some perspective on it. This is from a clip from the movie called Paul, the Apostle of Christ. And there's this scene at the end where Paul is talking to the head of the Roman prison that he's in. And the prison head is telling Paul that he is sorry for the way that Nero makes his Christians walk into the stadium where they are killed by wild animals. And then Paul has this awesome discourse with him. Paul asks the prison head if he's ever been sailing. And he goes on to describe this scene. He says, imagine yourself looking out at the vast sea before you. You reach down and put your hand into the water and scoop it up towards you. Immediately, the water starts leaking through your fingers until the hand is empty. That water is a man's life. From birth to death, it is always slipping through our hands until it is gone. Along with everything that you hold dear in this world, and yet the kingdom I speak of, that I live for, is like the rest of the water out in the seas. Man lives for that cup of water that slips through his fingers. But those that follow Jesus Christ live for that endless expanse of the sea. I'll just reiterate that. Man lives for that cup of water that slips through his fingers. But those that follow Jesus Christ live for that endless expanse of sea. And I can think of no other word other than say amen to that. Thanks for having me, guys. I hope this wasn't too bad on Zoom, but I hope it worked all right. Thanks.